it's a it's a it's a fairy tale by a Danish author. Ah, okay. H.C. <laughs> Anderson. So so it definitely rings a bell, and we talked about it several times. Uh, that it's it's like everybody's going along with this fairy tale story of Da Vinci painting it, and then very few people they they act like the small boy saying, yeah. "Hey, yeah. listen, he hasn't got any clothes on." <laughs> You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Hello, this is Rodolfo Rivas and this is my podcast. My guest is Andreas Koffer, the film director of The Lost Leonardo. His latest film, but also The Armstrong and Ballroom Dancer, amongst others. I had a chance to talk to Andreas at the Zurich Film Festival for the premiere of his latest film, The Lost Leonardo. The screening room was packed and the experience of being back at the movie theater with a big audience was fabulous. During our conversation, we talked about how Andreas got into films and filmmaking. He initially studied political science and music, and this interest shined through his latest film and across most of his filmography. Although we do not go into spoilers, we do talk in depth about The Lost Leonardo, a riveting film that touches on many themes, moving seamlessly from one to another. The story of the Salvatore Mundi painting attributed to Leonardo da Vinci was featured prominently in the news during the last few years. Of course, everyone knows it broke all, it broke all records when it was sold in auction for over, over 450 million in 2017, but there is more to the story. Andres weaves a tale that has it all and blurs the lines between documentary and fiction filmmaking. In our discussion, we talk about the process of making the film. Andreas tells us a bit more about the provenance of the painting, and we talk about some of the techniques used in telling the story. Although the film starts with art, we go into the financial world, power, and geopolitics, pretty much touching on all topics I hold dear to my heart. I highly recommend you to watch this film, because it makes us think about ourselves, human nature, and the times we live in, just as any great piece of art. It was an insightful but also fun conversation with Andreas. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. You can also spread the word by telling your friends, or even your enemies about us. The more, the merrier. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Good morning, Andreas. Thank you for accepting my invitation. You're welcome. I I was at the screening. I guess it's the premiere of your film here in Zurich uh, two two days ago, and I found it riveting. So congratulations on that. Thanks so much. Uh, but before we talk about that, which I really want to talk about that, I want to hear a bit about you. Like, uh, when did you decide to become a filmmaker? I think I was uh, around 20 years old. 20 years old. Yeah. As a, as a child, I never thought of becoming a film director, actually. I, I, was, I always loved films, but I, I didn't see myself as, as a filmmaker. Um, but then it was a kind of a coincidence. I, I had studied political science for, for half a year, and I'd, I dropped out of that study because I, I, I found out that I wasn't that interested in political science, <laughs> after all. <laughs> and I needed to have a break after high school and so on. So I went to Paris, uh, and I... Uh, 
I played piano since I was like six years old. So I, I went to this uh, jazz academy in Paris and okay. played piano. And at the same time, I, I studied French. Um, and then when I came back from Paris, I didn't, I didn't really know what to, what to do or what to become. And a friend of mine had a, a big brother who, who had just started making this uh, TV program for young people at, at Centropa, uh, the, the company of Last One Trier. Okay. Uh, and I, I met with them and, and uh, they offered me to, to help them out just for free. Okay. And then I started doing small things like filming small portraits of people, editing a little bit. And I found out that it was like, super fun and that I could actually in, engage myself in it 100% and also use my skills from music. And Yeah, actually that's what I was uh, noticing. So you said that you studied political science, so that somehow has made it in your films. Also music, so it's like a combination of all your interests. Yeah, exactly. Actually, after starting making films, I, I continued my studies in sociology. Yeah. So I studied that for four years and then I entered the film school, the National Film School of Denmark. So I always wanted to combine those different interests and I think, I mean, there, there are different uh, films that I, I like, there are different ways of making films, but I think ideally with a documentary, it's really nice if you have a combination of a very strong personal story yeah. with a, a story that also tells us something about the world today, something about society. So if you have both of those ingredients, you have like material for, for something uh, ex extraordinary. And you mentioned... Um You, you mentioned Lars von, Lars von Trier. How influential is he in the film scene in, in Denmark? I think he's very influential because he, he has made all these very daring, provocative films and like he has challenged the film language and so on. So he, he's one of the, the guys that you, as a young director, you look up to and you think, wow, he, he really has something. He really have, has a, a personal, a very distinct uh, approach I to see. filmmaking. And he, he makes... Uh, Of films that also have a bit of content like uh, more on the documentary side even though it's like uh, fiction but some of the techniques uh, was this something that also influenced you somehow or yeah I think I, when I started making films it, it was just around the, the dogma yeah. wave so that 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 way of telling a story where you just use a small camera actually the the camera that I started using was the same as as was used uh, on, on some of the dogma films um, so that way of just like telling a story in a very like rough and minimalistic way just by using one camera no uh, light added and all that uh, that that was really a big inspiration so yeah but before that the the notion of my notion of filmmaking was like a very heavy production with hundreds of people on set and um, and at that time uh, documentary filmmaking was was not technically it, it was also kind of not possible to make like a strong intimate portrait of just following one character because simply because the the, the cameras were too bad yeah and if you wanted to have like a really good camera you needed to have a, a bigger crew so suddenly around the the beginning of the uh, 2000s you would have cameras that were good enough that you to to make a proper film that you could operate just on your own yeah. and that suddenly created the the possibility of of making really strong intimate documentary films in a new way yeah. and and that that really intrigued me and, and inspired me so so i wanted to pursue that and uh, i think all of your films so far have been documentaries is that correct yes Uh, well, when I was growing up, I remember documentaries were something that was like not so accessible. Um, but that seems to have changed like in the last 
couple of years. How did you get into like specifically documentaries as an interest? I think you already touched a bit on it, but I want to hear more of why documentaries and why not uh, fiction. I, I think my my main uh, interest was to to meet real people that fascinated me and to get close to them and to tell like real stories. Yeah. Because I I didn't and I still don't feel like I have like. A, a very um, special fantasy that makes me able to make up stories from scratch that will <laughs> fascinate everybody. Yeah. I don't. I don't feel that I have that ability. When when I have to make up something, then I immediately start thinking, well, this might be a good story, but there are thousands of other options that might be better than this, and this might be too cliche or something. So so when you go out in in real life and meet real people, you you never have that doubt. You, you can be sure that this is for real and it's, it's, um, it is something special and it, especially if, you, if the person or the story touches you then, then you get the sense that you're on, on the right direction and that has been like a crucial guideline for me that if I'm touched by, by meeting a person and by listening to his or her story then I'm, I'm pretty sure that I can touch others by telling the story. And also I think that I would like to hear your thoughts on how documentaries in the last few years has become more accessible to people. Before it seems that uh, documentaries were something that you would watch in school and not really like the comfort of your house or go to the movies to see documentaries. But now it's like pretty common and there's big documentaries, including your latest film. Uh, how do you see this like transition from more um, of a reserved place to like more mainstream? Yeah, I think I think over the past Actually, 20 years, I think documentary filmmaking has more and more included tools from, from fiction. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and it, it, it's especially in the editing that, 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 that you can actually use the, the, the dramaturgical um, tricks from fiction. Uh, and use them within documentary. Before that, documentary was a kind of more conservative style of like showing a, a topic, discussing it, having a voiceover, presenting some interviews, like very factual, kind of dry. They could still be very, very good, um, but 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 suddenly it was there was an opening towards towards like blending more the ideas of, of storytelling between fiction and documentary, and and I think that has made it obvious also to the audience that, that watching a documentary is not necessarily something very serious or very dry. It can also be very entertaining yes. at the same time. Yes. Maybe even both very important and very entertaining at the same time. And, and I think that, that is, yeah. Also in Denmark, it's, it's been a, a movement for the past, I think, 15 years that we, we have this film festival called CPH Docs. And they have really managed to promote documentary uh, in, in a new way so, so that they have like huge audiences watching documentaries. And, and it's, it's something that people talk about as, as, a, as an art form uh, also and, and not just as a, as a TV format. Yes, uh, and this that you're talking about the blurring of the lines, I think it's something that you actually managed to do pretty well in your latest film. I think that uh, someone was mentioning that in the, one of the reviews they were calling it the, what was that? Uh, Chinatown? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that you managed to blend like both aspects and some of the recreations look pretty sleek and pretty, pretty well done. So when this is not something new, I, some of your previous films have also done it. But I think that this one is a bit more 
like a culmination of some of these techniques. Is yeah, yeah. I, I did a film called The Armstrong, yes. where I did like a huge reenactment of... It was a plane uh, flying from, a small Russian plane flying from uh, Denmark to India, where this Danish activist uh, was smuggling four tons of weapons and dropping them over India. And, and we did this as a, as a whole like a layer in the film where we reenacted that whole event with, with actors uh, and that we also used uh, dialogue. So, so it was really like a fictional element, but based on the true story, but squeezed into the documentary. And in, to some extent it, it worked well, but then again, always when you, when you use reenactments, it's, it's very tricky because it's so obvious that it's, it's not the real thing. <laughs> And when you go back and forth between like a real character in an interview and the reenactment, you make the audience all the time aware that, oh, now we move into something that is made up. Now it's the real thing. And it, it's, I, th I think that's, that's not really ideal for the, for the storytelling. So I think the, the trick is to make it in a subtle way so you don't become aware of it. So you just accept it as, as a story and not think about how was this made while you watch it because that, that will distort your focus. So, so with this, uh, The Lost Leonardo, we, we were lucky that we, we had access to, to the real characters, of course, and we could also do some of the reenactments with the, the, the real characters. Yeah. So, for example, the, the lady who restored the painting. We could film her in her studio restoring a different painting and then we could use it as a, as a, as a way of uh, illustrating her process with restoring the Da Vinci painting. Yeah. Um, and, and in that way, we, we didn't have to find an actress who could play her and so on because that would have made it more superficial. And then the other thing we did was that we mainly worked with, with close-ups. So we would see the painting traveling through the different places and, and, and focus on that instead of the... the we, we used a, a few actors, but, but instead of focusing on their faces and, and so on, we used like yeah. more close-ups and more silhouettes and stuff like that. But it's, it's a very delicate balance because it, it, it can take over the focus uh, of the story. Which I think in The Lost Leonardo, it doesn't take you out of focus because they're pretty subtle, like you mentioned. Uh, now talking about Leos Leonardo, um, this was a story that was played in the news, so it was like pretty public. How did you like manage to find the thread of the story that you wanted to tell? Was that something that happened while you were making the movie, like when you were editing? At what stage did you find the, the thread of the story? Yeah, when we started the story, it was, it was some months after the Christie's sale where the painting became the most expensive piece of art ever sold. So it had hit the, the, the headlines around the world, as you, as you said. Um, there were also at that time rumors, of course, that it was uh, Mohammed bin Salman who was the owner of it. So we knew that we had to tell the story from when the painting was discovered in 2005 in New Orleans and then up to that point. But that, then at the same time, there were still uh, new events coming up and, and new developments in the story that we had to include as well and be open towards. So the big question was, will, will this painting be exhibited again? Uh, will the owner step forward and admit that he's the owner and so on? So, so we had to, to be flexible and... and <coughs> but, but, but we... We discovered after a while that it was actually that the story would actually fit pretty well into a three-act structure because the first act we would, with the painting as the main character, we would dig into the art world as as like one secretive world. Yeah. And then in the second act, 
by just by following the painting, we would enter into the financial world where we, we would see how art is used as a financial tool. So that would make the, the second act and, and yeah, cover all the financial aspects of, of the story. And then the third act would be like the geopolitical world that we enter with Macron and Mohammed bin Salman and so on. So, so the story luckily fell into a, a natural three-act structure, uh, but it took us some time to really find out how to shape it and also how to limit uh, the story because it's... Yeah, it it's, could go on forever. It, it could go on forever <laughs> and we interviewed, I think, 35 people or something and they were all very interesting and had interesting backstories and there were all the time the temptation to to make a detour into yeah. something and we realized that if we did so we we had to get back to the painting after maximum two three minutes because if not we would kind of lose the 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 narrative spine of the story yeah. and and we would lose focus so so that was really challenging and uh, at the beginning of the film in the opening credits i think that you do a pretty good uh, job about summarizing and like tracking like what are you going to see in the in mm. the next uh, when did that uh, come into play what that one did was everything done and you're like this would be like a nice introduction yeah it was the whole graphic layer came in uh, pretty late uh, we, we we found out that it was nice to have like the geography in place and and the increase of value so that you would be able to follow that so and then we we also found out that we we needed to tell it the story in a, a chronological way because if not people would get lost yeah so we we tried to do whatever we could to 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 simplify or not not to simplify but to to make the, the story accessible by presenting the the value and the facts in a in a very easy uh, to understand way um But it, but the, I think the title sequence was under development, like during the end of the editing period. Mm. And uh, regarding the the character, uh, the the restorer Diane Mostini, I think that you managed to get a lot of out of her. Like she was being really honest and really forthcoming with her story. How did you manage to build this relationship with your the people that you interviewed? Because it was not only her; a couple of people were sharing a lot. Yeah, I think it's about uh, building up a, a trust relationship. Um, this story has has been so much in the media, and there's so much uh, controversy around it. And and some people are, are maybe also a little afraid of speaking up about it because yes. it, it creates headlines and um, yeah, there's a lot of criticism. So so for me, it was crucial to to just so show my sincere interest in the story and in their part of the story, and and then just uh, build up. Uh, trust over some time so it, it would not just be like one interview and then uh, they would never hear from me again but it would be like uh, yeah yeah writing back and forth staying in touch like asking more questions to clarify aspects of the story and just like yeah we we spent three years making the film so we we had pretty good time to to go into to depth with the different parts of the story so so I, I think the characters they the, the different people they they felt confident that they could share uh, their stories like without like hesitation and without like uh, only showing one one side of it I, I don't want to spoil anything in the film but uh, at one of the early scenes with Diane which actually I thought it was I don't know like a like you putting some clues in the film when she's like randomly looking at some pictures and she wonders like who who drew that picture who like and she was attributing this other picture so was that something left in there like a little 
clue as to your potential view on, on the matter? Um, yeah, she's, she's looking through old paintings in her house in yes. Italy and, and one of them might be, it's like, just like a small uh, still label, it, and one of them might be her, her husband who did it or it might be herself. Yeah. So it, it, it points, it gives a hint to that <laughs> paintings, you can't be sure of who, who did paintings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things will like <laughs> blend together and, and, and suddenly you don't know who, who did what. So, so that, that was certainly a, a small hint. Yeah, I really love that. And I, I, it's pretty subtle, but it's there and it's pretty, pretty nice, nice point. Um, Another thing that I found fascinating, I work, I work in international trade, so I've always known about free ports, but I never thought that it was something sexy or some stories behind there. You did it, and it was also in Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Now, like, I'm wondering, maybe there's a thousand, a million of stories that happened there in free ports. How did, uh, how did you get involved with this? Well, we, we, um, there was a, a writer and researcher on our film who, who was really fascinated with this. I was also fascinated with it, but he, but he really took it to the next level and he, he approached uh, Yves Bouvier and he, he got in touch with him. And, and luckily for the film, he was willing to, to show us his reports and to, to tell his part of the story. So, so we got a, a great access into that. Um, and, and at that point, and it's, it's still ongoing, but he's, he's in these numerous lawsuits with this Russian oligarch and, and he has to find a way to defend himself. And I think he, Bouvier, thought that appearing in a documentary film like this would, would, would help him to, to show his side of the story. Because Rybolovlev, he has, he has hired several media agencies just to put dirt on Bouvier and uh, create stories about him. So Bouvier thought, well, I can appear in this film and then I can show my side of it. So, so we also had to be careful about him not just making like a nice self-portrait in yeah. our film, but also looking at him from a different angle uh, and, and yeah, building in the, the, the critique of, of his actions as well. Um, but, but definitely the free poets, they are, they are exciting and they are, they are very secretive. They are, that's the whole nature of them, that they have to be secret in order to function. So, so it's going to be interesting to see how, how much is going to come out of that secret yeah. space. <laughs> because as I've understood, it's like um, a lot of extremely wealthy people around the world who, who, who save their valuable goods there and who also trade them within the free port. So it's like a parallel yeah, society. It's like, it's like an off. anomaly within the system that it's there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I know that the, the European Union, they are looking into this and, and they are trying to, to put up restrictions. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the latest development is in that and if they, they're going to succeed because I, I guess there's so much interest from very powerful people in keeping keep it, them yeah. or to even <laughs> develop it. Yeah. And I know that the UK, Boris Johnson has mentioned that he would like uh, free ports in, in the UK and maybe even create the, the, the whole of the UK as, as, as a free port um, in order to increase trade and all that. So, so it, it's going to be exciting to see how that develops. Similarly to free ports, I've always thought that like the provenance of some of these artifacts and uh, art pieces they definitely have a lot of stories there to to be told uh, you do a pretty good job in tracking the provenance up to a certain extent um, was there any more information 
regarding this that was not included in the film? <coughs> there, there's actually much more, um, but we, we, we had the challenge that um, the story is like all the time moving forward from 2005. That was like the starting point. The start, starting point. And we found out that if we suddenly s stopped and went back before 2005, it would be like a, like a stopper in the, yeah. in the narrative. Um, so, so we had to limit the the space or the time that we could spend on on the provenance. But I I, I struggled with it because I, I felt that there were so so many interesting details about the painting. For example, before 2005, um, it was it was revealed by the Wall Street Journal um, that that it was hanging in this staircase in a house in New Orleans. And it had been there for two different houses for belonging to the same family for 50 years, and they never knew what it was. And uh, an uncle, Warren Kunst, had bought it in, in London in 1958 for only 40, 45 pounds at an auction where there were several of the, the world-leading Leonardo scholars from that time present, and they, and they didn't notice it. <laughs> they yeah. just passed it on, and, and this American guy uh, made a bit uh, For nothing and, and, and brought it to the US. Before that it was in a collection called the Cook Collection which was a, a pretty uh, prominent collection in London but before the Second World War the owner took his most valuable paintings out of the place because he feared that London would be bombed and he didn't bring the Salvatore Mundi. He left that because he didn't consider it to be anything. Yeah. <laughs> and the house where it was hanging, the, it's called the Dorty House, it was eventually bombed by the Germans and luckily the painting survived. But it's it shows that the painting has been neglected, neglected for so many years, hundreds of years and not considered to be anything. And then suddenly in 2005, these guys, they look at it, they, it's been at that time overpainted. Yeah. So that's why it's been in, in disguise. So when they remove the overpaint uh, with the restorer, Diane Modestini, then they see there are some fantastic details. But I think that's really fascinating that it, it was like... Unnoticed for many. Yeah, yeah unnoticed. <laughs> <laughs> And um, regarding the technique, and, uh, when the editing, I guess this came in the editing, there's a lot of scenes when you with the, the people that you're talking to, that you linger more after actually they deliver something and you linger on, with them on, on camera. How did this uh, come? Because I really thought that this added a lot to the, the film, to see the reaction. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it was about um, not only showing their like uh, statement, statement or like a presentation uh, where they like deliver it with a certain attitude, but also show a bit the, the aftermath because it, it gives you another insight into how they feel about it. Um, and it, it was actually also inspired by an element of Da Vinci's art Which, which, which he is uh, celebrated for, and that is that he, he not only shows people um, in, in a, all of his characters, except from the Christ and Salvatore Mundi, they are, they are in a physical movement, they are in the middle of an action, and, and he's celebrated for not only showing an action, a movement, but also giving an insight into the, into the, to the mental state of the character that he's portraying. So he has this like double uh, focus in, his, in all his paintings. Yeah. That's what some of the, the, the scholars say. And I, I felt that that was inspiring for the, for the film as well. It's not only showing the surface, the immediate actions, but also showing the inside of, of the characters. So, so it was a way of accessing that. And also similarly to this, I think that you also put a lot of reactions 
to some of the people you're interviewing to others, other statements and other things. I actually saw something similar, I think, in The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, where he's reacting to a statement that he made or something like that. Uh, but I think that this technique is pretty pretty good to show like a more like dialogue between the, the parties. Exactly, exactly. I think we, we had the challenge that, that most of the film would be based on interviews and, and that, that can be kind of dry and, and, and maybe boring. Luckily, the, the, the characters here were many of them really good storytellers. Um, but, but we got the idea of, because they're all talking about the same painting, then to, instead of just keeping them as separate interviews, then let them play together as, as a conversation. So, so we tried to, to do that uh, where it made sense. And I, I think that it gives a more playful yeah. feeling. Um, yeah. There's some of the, um, of the key players that mainly come in the second part or in the last part of the story that uh, we don't get to hear about them but I imagine that you reached out to them uh, and you probably didn't get any yeah. positive how, how is that uh, process like to reaching out to them is it a constant process or or perhaps you say like, yeah, we're never gonna get them but let's try and uh, how does it work we we, we uh, reached out to all the the important figures in this uh, story from from the beginning to before we started shooting and and then to the very late stage of editing because we wanted to to yeah to keep trying and see if we could get like a statement from the Saudi Ministry of Culture uh, or from the the Russian oligarch Rubilovlev because it, it would have been uh, fantastic to have them as well in the film so so we did we tried to all the different channels we had to to reach out uh, the Rubilovlev he he decided not to appear in a film as long as the trials with Bouvier are still ongoing. Okay. So that makes sense. Uh, and, and the Saudi prince, he, they, they ne never got back to us. And I think it's because they, they wanted to, to, to wait until they know exactly what to do with the painting. And they, I assume that they have like a master plan with the painting, but that they are only going to speak about it when they reveal that plan. So, so it makes sense as well. But besides that, we also reached out to institutions like National Gallery, the Louvre, Christie's, and they were, they were quiet. Um, we were in dialogue with the Louvre. They actually said yes to an interview at some point. But then when the painting didn't show up at the exhibition, they, they backed out. Also because they have a law in France saying that they are not allowed to talk about paintings that are not hanging on their wall. Oh, okay. So, so that was convenient for them. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I guess they also felt that this painting has become so controversial. So by appearing, talking about it, they would probably get into more trouble than they already uh, have gotten into. So, so the big institutions, they are, they are quiet about this painting. And that's, uh, that's uh, a shame because they, they, they might hold some information that, that would be interesting for us and for the public about this painting. Yeah. So, so in a way, it's not only the painting that is missing, it's also the truth about it that has gone missing because of a, a lot of different interests from these very powerful institutions. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's very telling of the world today, that, that the narratives and are, are controlled by powerful institutions and we as ordinary people, we, we can't get access to them. So we, we are told stories but we are not sure what we can believe. Um, I kept thinking when I was watching the film that this was like a new take on the, I don't know if it's a fable or what, the emperor's new clothes, where no one is like saying, it's like, yeah, they all say, yes, we see what those nice clothes, uh, does this ring a bell to you? Yes, yes, it's, it's, uh, 
it's a it's a fairy tale by a Danish author. Ah, okay. H. <laughs> Anderson. So so it definitely rings a bell, and we talked about it several times. Uh, that it's it's like everybody's going along with this fairy tale story of Da Vinci painting it, and then very few people they they act like the small boy saying, yeah. "Hey, yeah. listen, he hasn't got any clothes on." <laughs> so so that's completely yeah, spot on. And. Um, I'm just curious as uh, well. I'm, I really love the film, I, and I think that it's a great film that it will get an audience because it's a great story. Uh, but I'm curious about why. What are your next projects? If there's anything that you can tell. Yeah, I'm, I've been in a situation where I, I have worked on several films uh, back to back, back to back, <laughs> or, or at the same time actually. And because of the lost Leonardo, I had to like postpone some of the projects. Uh, so now I'm I'm finishing uh, two different films uh, that are completely different uh, in style uh, than than the lost Leonardo. One is about a girl who, when she was 11, she was sleepwalking, and she dreamt that her little sister had thrown her hat out of the window. And she opened the window and jumped out to get the hat, and she fell down from fifth floor down on on concrete and miraculously she survived. And I met her just a few months after that accident. And then I followed her way back to, to life and to, yeah. So, so it's a very intimate story about like surviving a traumatic experience, dealing with the, the trauma and at the same time becoming a young, a young person in that process. So, so uh, I'm, I'm editing that right now. It's called uh, The Fall. Um, and then I'm, uh, then I'm doing a few other things as well. But, but, uh, Yeah. Are you planning on doing any fiction work, or that's something that's not interesting to you? I, I think it could be interesting. I, I I have thought about that for a long time, and I have worked on several ideas, like on just on script level, um, and I'm 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 planning to to pursue that. Also because I I think it's it's a great challenge um, to the next evolution for your yeah, yeah. skills. <laughs> yeah. And it's also it's a way of like work-wise also like try different disciplines and combine them. It can be a little tough just to make documentaries because the whole process of researching access work and especially also the funding part of it can take so long. So 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 just doing that over and over again can be a little draining. Tired. Yeah, yes. a little draining. <laughs> I guess fiction is also complicated, but in in other ways. Yes. Um, but I think the combination would be pretty ideal if, if, if that would be possible well uh, I just uh, lastly I just want to hear like what are some of the filmmakers or types of films that that you watch yourself to find inspiration or just for your own uh, enjoyment mm, I think yeah I actually I'd, you don't get a lot of time to <laughs> <laughs> I don't get a lot of time but I, I have of course my favorite uh, Filmmakers, I I love uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Ah, I love Paul um, Thomas Anderson. And within documentary, yeah, it's it's um, my my favorite film in documentary of all time. It's by Frederick Wiseman, the the American uh, filmmaker who's now very old. Uh, he he made one called Titicot Follies uh, from from know. the 60s. Okay. About a, a mental uh, hospital or slash prison where he is able to like capture some fantastic scenes. It was the film that inspired uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's okay, Nest okay. with uh, Jack Nicholson. Um, that's a fantastic story. Um, yeah. So More recently, you're very busy working on your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And I, I can say that the film is amazing and people should go and see it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. This was the Juan Alfa. 
Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig